I guess I should say happy birthday, everybody. Because the day of Pentecost is the birthday of God's true church. I want to go back to that event that took place. We read of it in the second chapter of the book of Acts, after a little introduction in the first chapter, and go through that briefly and see what it was and what it was not. You've heard in the sermon I had a little bit about the Holy Spirit being like a down payment and what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and a little bit about the fruits of God's Spirit. I want to show you what the Holy Spirit will not produce in an individual or in a church or in church leadership or the ministry, as well as what it will produce. They were told in the first chapter of the book of Acts to be assembled and to wait because they would be imbued with power from on high. Now, what was that power? We know there are churches that take their name from this event, the day of Pentecost. Unfortunately, like the street in Dallas, Texas, they sometimes don't even know how to spell it. There's a street in Dallas, Texas called P-E-N-T-I-C-O-S-T. There must be hundreds of signs along blocks and blocks of this street called Pentecost. No, the Greek and the English translated from the Greek is P-E-N-T-E-C-O-S-T. No big deal, but it's just a thing, a thing to say in passing. On the day of Pentecost, an untranslated Greek word. Really, if it were in English, it should say, when the 50th day was fully come, because that's all it means. The word Pentecost means 50th. It doesn't mean count 50. It means 50th, the 50th, like 49th, 50th, 51st, the word Pentecost means 50th, was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly, so it wasn't worked up gradually, as has been explained over the years, there came a sound from heaven, not a sound from the organ or the piano or hundreds of people's voices or guttural wailings or moanings of human throats, but from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Now, I heard that outside my eaves several times in the last few days, a couple of times to the point where I looked a little anxiously at big green boughs being ripped from the trees across the way and flung up into the air and began to wonder how long my shingles were going to stay on. I get a little anxious when I hear a rushing mighty wind. So this was an awesome sound. It was, in a, in a way, a frightening sound, a roaring, mighty wind, like a tornado. It sounded like a freight train going by. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them... Now, again, we get into some of the awkwardness of the King James Version. Let me read it the way it really is in the Greek and into the English. There appeared unto them leaping tongues of fire equally distributed among them. The word cloven is a ridiculous mistranslation. You know, a, a, a snake has like a cloven tongue, or they say you can take a crow or a magpie and they can split the tongue and they can actually teach that bird to talk like a minor bird or a parrot. And always, to me, a cloven tongue has been the symbol of evil. And a lot of people don't understand this. We use the word around a campfire, when you see a flame, that it has like tongues because of the nature of the way a flame will burn, and it's called tongues of fire. That's all this means, leaping flames of fire that sat upon each one of them. I've seen some very impressive military headdresses or caps or hats worn by officers in the Navy, Air Force, Army, Marines, etc. The Germans know how to do that like almost no other nation. 
The Italians have rather squat, funny little hats with a smaller crown. The British tend to have a very small crown on their officers. But the Germans now, they have that big peaked cap. This was the most enthralling and the most awesome, the most decorative, I would, I would say, the most beautiful kind of a crown that anybody could ever affect. I knew a man that went to the college in England that was dabbling in electronics and he actually produced so that people could buy little buttons and studs for a formal tuxedo with a hidden little battery in your pocket and you walked about and your little buttons and studs were little tiny lights that were dancing and gleaming. Now that would really be interesting. But this, these men had like a crown of actual flame, fire. You know, you can see a girl with beautiful blonde hair and the sun hit it just right and it can just be so dazzling. Or you can see people that have a beautiful head of hair and it can be very impressive. Nothing could have been more impressive than this. That would have gotten the attention of a crowd instantly. And here were the apostles standing there with flames seemingly like the shape of a crown leaping out of the tops of their heads. What a phenomenal thing it must have been. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if any doctrine of the New Testament has been any more misunderstood than the Holy Spirit. Proof? Look what the translators called it in 1611. Ghost. Nonsense. There's nothing ghost-like or wraith-like, nothing of the ogre or the poltergeist or the troll of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it un unbelievable and almost obscene that since a ghost normally has a demonic or a satanic connotation or is allegedly the haunted or the tormented or the tortured spirit of someone who lived in an old house and has come back to haunt it, that even the translators in 1611 would take the most beautiful and the most holy and the most powerful very statement concerning the mind, the nature, the life of Almighty God and translate it ghost, it falls so short of saying what really the Bible is connoting. Spirit is the best word and even then we need to understand what he is saying by this. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now how did that happen? What do you mean filled with the Holy Spirit? Mr. Watkins read a scripture I'll refer to in passing a little later about the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the proofs as to whether we have God's Holy Spirit or not. Mr. E.B. Vance handed me an interesting card that I think someone here gave to him, and he had a couple of them. It really would make a beautiful sermon title. The card reads, If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That is really a good thought, you know what I mean? If you can just imagine, you could extrapolate from there and you could portray the whole scene and the judge and the jury and the prosecuting attorney would be, you know, a demon or Satan the devil or whatever. And they would say, well, I never found him praying or, you know, I, and, and really a lot of people would call themselves Christian. And the judge would say, not guilty, <laughs> you know, you're free to go, you're no Christian. I mean, false arrest, you know, and haul the officer in and say, hey, you know, you're losing your sergeant stripes, you had no business arresting this guy for being a Christian, because a Christian, he is not. I like that, that's, a, that's an interesting card. If you are a Christian, is there any evidence, is there any testimony, is there anything you could bring forward as a concrete proof to a body of completely disinterested people that you are a Christian. 
Can you prove it one way or the other? One of the greatest doctrines of truth in the Bible has to do with that process by which Almighty God makes us his children. How does he do it? Now, I don't want to go into the clinical and the technical or the biological any more than I have to, except to say in passing that all of us eventually in our biology classes and physiology and anatomy and so on are by the little children in the street usually learn where babies come from, no matter the nonsense of the stork brought you or you were left on the doorstep or I picked you up with the unemployment line or whatever it is uh, that people might say. People have said for years that the Bible resulted from ancient Hebrew mothers who didn't know what to say when their little babies came and said, Mother, in Hebrew, you know, where did I come from? Hush, child, God sent you. You know, God made you. Uh, didn't know what to say and were too embarrassed to tell them the real process by which they came into being. All of us who are adults and children are suspicious know where babies come from. How does God beget a human being and make that human being a child of his? Does the Holy Spirit come into your nose or your elbow or your knee or your ribcage or some other part of your human physical anatomy, the tibula, the fibia, the patella, the scapula, where does the Holy Spirit come? What happens? How does, it, how does this obtain? How does God do it? Does he literally do something so that there is a measurable, discernible, actual presence which is as real as this stone or concrete under your feet is real? Is it so real that either it is there and God sees it like a brilliant flickering light or it isn't there and they're just a black void and there is nothing. Now you know we're told to be a light. There are all kinds of lights, incandescent, fluorescent, etc. But for the purposes of an analogy, let's assume that the whole world are moths and we are to be a certain kind of a light. What kind of a light should we be? I know some religionists that think they ought to be this Zap light. It's like a blue light and it's terribly attractive to moths. And you can sit outside eating. It's kind of a macabre thing to do. And every now and then you hear a kind of a zip. Another bug flew into this thing and inside of it is, I guess, is it a powerful electric current or is it a blade going with great speeds? Anyhow, instantly it eats the bug. Bugs flying around. Hey, there's a good looking light. It's black everywhere. The bug wants to go to the light. Bug flies into the light and zip. The bug is gone and the dust is kind of hanging in the air where the bug was. You can buy a bug light, I don't see any up here, and it's a kind of a dull yellow or kind of an orange light. You can put it outside your screen, you turn it on, that way you can have light, but the bugs are repelled by it. They look at that light and for some reason it emits a certain color spectrum they don't like. But a white bright light, an incandescent light, really attracts those bugs and they fly right straight toward it. They just go crazy. They dance around it, they lick it, they climb on it, they do backstrokes over the surface of it. They want to get as close to that light bulb as they possibly can. They are powerfully attracted to that white light. God says that His Holy Spirit in you is supposed to be like that white light. And that if the people of the world are like moths, there is supposed to be something about you that is so powerfully attractive that people want to be around you. I'm going to submit, as a revolutionary thought, 
that a lot of people I have known, including a lot who call themselves ministers, have been more like that zap light. When the bug flies up, they get him, or they see him turn on, and they simply are repelled, and they want to fly in any direction except toward that yellow light. And all too few have been a bright white incandescent light that attracts and pulls people toward that light like a magnet. The Holy Spirit of God is not a person of the Godhead. You can prove that, and I won't belabor that, because I think most of you believe that, but if you don't, simply look into the first chapter of Matthew and of Luke and see how it was said that Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then remember that no church, including the Catholic Church, claims that God the Father, whom they view as one of the three of the so-called Trinity, and the Holy Spirit are the same person, but they say are uniquely different persons. They also take no issue with, nor do they argue, that Jesus in his life prayed to the wrong person. Yet, if Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit, and if the Holy Spirit is a person, then the personality of the Godhead who fathered Jesus Christ was not the Father, but the Holy Spirit. There is no Trinity. First John 5, 7, the three-in-one scripture there are three that bear witness, etc., was not found in the English versions or even the German versions of the Bible until after the inventing, the inventing of printing in the time of Gutenberg. Not a one of the original manuscripts have it. None of the old Latin texts have it. None of the old German texts have it. None of the old diaglots or polyglots have it. And it is an invention, purely, of those who believed in the Trinity and wanted to insert it where they thought it would be good because it seemed to hint something in that direction. So, of course, there's a song in the book about holy, 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 God in three persons, etc. What that has done, it has locked in the Godhead to three persons and has locked out anyone else to say that they will all be on a lesser level. Now, I have reproduced after my kind, and many of you have, and I have some sons here today that will look a little bit like me in some ways, and a little bit like their mother in other ways, and we have had a visit recently from my sister, and we talked a great deal about family and so on, and we all know how we're able to pass on through heredity and later environment certain familial characteristics, even from paternal and maternal grandparents. And we can see in babies something about the eye or something about the nature, something even about the skeletal structure or the build. Sometimes we can see some of grandpa or grandma in a child. After three or four generations, you, you don't tend to see that anymore. But in the first, second generations, you can. We pass on our nature. We pass on certain talents and abilities or the lack of them certain bone structure and skin texture and hair color and certain tendency toward obesity or thinness or what have you. And these things are hereditary in nature. Now, Almighty God has great and limitless power. That power we see only by investigating the powers with which we work in a human, limited, mundane sphere. I'm using one right now. The power of electronics which picks up the voice and then projects it by vibrating a whole bunch of little speakers lined up inside these ugly 
things standing here, which emits vibrations in the air, which vibrates your outer ear, which conveys that on a little hammer to the fluid of the inner ear, which causes a kind of a brain wave, and you think you're hearing me speak. You're not. You're listening to your inner ear sloshing around. But uh, anyway, it's a marvelous thing. We deal, rub our hands together, with heat and friction. We deal with fire, the very primitive and the most simple methods of discovering some of the energies of God. But today, man is beginning to unlock some of the power of the universe. And that's what fission, or fusion, I should say, hydrogen fusion, the explosion of a hydrogen bomb, the splitting of a hydrogen atom, is really doing. It is taking apart the very basic electroactive elements of nature itself. All nature, this microphone, the stand, the desk, the platform, my physical body, are made up of molecules. The smallest divisible particle of matter retaining the properties of that matter from which it came. Each one of those molecules, be it a molecule of water or of wood or of leather, is made up of who knows how many millions or maybe hundreds of millions of atoms. Each one of those atoms is made up of many little electrical particles. Protrons, electrons, neutrons, and various other little particles they are now discovering. And each one of those is like a tiny universe with those little particles rushing about at millions of milliseconds speed continually in motion. So taking our universe apart and looking into now the microcosm as opposed to the macrocosm of the universe, we see what? A little miniature universe. And in that universe, electrical energy and power. You know what power is. Certainly people that get struck by a runaway Mack truck do. A truck that gets hit by a train does. Someone being thrust back in his seat when a 747 takes off knows what power is. Our astronauts on the space shuttle, when they're hurtled down range and out into space with that tremendous number of Gs against their body when they're first lifted off and thrust out into outer space or into near space in an orbit, know what great power can be generated by the explosive burning of liquid oxygen or liquid hydrogen. You have only seen, as I have in motion pictures, the explosion of a hydrogen bomb. That is incredible, awesome power. Now, God is power. He is energy. I'm not saying he is just a vague something. He exists, but he is able to manipulate, to use, or to utilize power in the same way you, in a very, very limited way, have the ability to project physical power only as far as your reach or as far as you can roll a bowling ball, or as far as you can shoot a bullet a mile or two or three, or as far as you can shout and cause the emission of vibrations from your voice wave in a forest, it won't go very far and just die out, and it'll be like dropping a pebble in the ocean. The waves will finally dissipate and it'll be gone. But you emitted a certain range of power, a certain vocal frequency that finally died out. God, through divine fiat, through the use of his power, is not limited in the way that we are. If we could step into another dimension of life, which exists all about us, I was talking to my sister about a very unfortunate experience I won't go into, but an encounter one time with the other world, a demonic spirit. I have actually seen human individuals whose tongues have spoken with the voice of a spirit, I've been there. I've seen it. I know they exist. When you hear a catty, snappy, sardonic, sneering voice call you judge and say they were there at the time of the Ark of Noah, 
I'll tell you, that'll raise the hackles on the back of your neck. That'll stand your hair up. That'll make your eyes widen a little bit because you realize that there is a spirit being there that is a whole lot more powerful than you are. And unless you have the protection of God's Holy Spirit and the name and the protection of Christ, you are at their mercy. There were seven sons of a Jew named Siva who decided to get arrogant and decided to try to cast a demon out of an individual who was demon-possessed. And that individual just beat the living daylights out of all seven of them, ripped every shred of their clothing off, and left them fleeing, bruised, bleeding, naked, because they thought they could use the name of Christ and they had no authority to do so. They said, I adjure you by that Jesus whom so-and-so preaches or whatever, and that didn't do the job. And they just got the daylights beat right out of them. I'll tell you, you don't want to have any kind of a conflict with someone representing that other world. That other world is here. It is present. Either there are angelic beings, probably in the shape of human beings in this room, or there are not. Either there is a God up there in the outer part of the universe, wherever heaven is, who causes his sun to shine and set in motion that helium-hydrogen explosion of that giant orb that is giving us the beautiful sunshine today, or there is not. Either that God is able to put a part of that tremendous electrical energy into the very frontal lobe where your will and your personality and your decision-making process resides, your psyche, your will, and is able to alter that will, is able to unite almost like an ignition, igniting or uniting, with a spiritual essence that is in and is present inside your brain, or else you have no life in you. A man does not engender children by planting anything in a flower pot. Only human living flesh igniting with, actually penetrating and reproducing with, living human flesh produces these precious children. That's where they come from. Is that too technical for anybody? I don't think so. It's a miracle. It's a mind-boggling miracle where babies come from. Isn't it as much a mind-boggling miracle where gods come from? How a great being in outer space is actually reproducing after his own kind and is engendering children, and he wants those children to be like him, and look like him, and act like him, and talk like him, and have his nature. Now, what kind of a nature does he have? Here were these individuals whose natures were completely changed, and I can cite many cases. Certainly one of the most outstanding is Saul, the destroyer, who hated with a purple passion people in the church of God, who became Paul, the mild-mannered apostle who wrote 14 books of the Bible, and it gives us a remarkable example of a complete 180-degree change in a man's life and purpose and personality. I want to turn to Matthew 18 just for a moment. Matthew, the 18th chapter, and see what Jesus said. The disciples came asking, Who is the greatest? Remember they had that argument continually. They were on the wrong, I'm tempted to say track, I think I'll say uh, train of thought there. They were continually thinking pecking order. They were mesmerized with a vertical hierarchy. They wanted vertical structure. They wanted to know who's over who and who's under who, so everybody knew where they belonged. Jesus really 
show them a great example. Called a little child, like I could look out here and see one of these sweet little children. Come up here, take a look. Stand here, and the little kid stand looking around, wide-eyed. And he set him in the midst of them, and he said, Verily, I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just ask a few questions about our God. Jesus goes on to say, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. And a little later on in verse 11, he said, The Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. And then he talks about the sheep. And when a sheep is lost, does the pastor go looking for the sheep? And the sheep is away from the flock. The sheep is isolated. And the pastor makes a search through nooks and crannies of the rocks and goes up into the hills and out into the desert and so on. And when he finds him, he whips out a forty-four magnum and pumps five bullets into him and says, Got the little beggar! Or does he tenderly pick him up and care for his wombs and love him? Does he even bother making the search in the first place? In Galatians 5, it says in verse 22, But the proof... Read it that way. The evidence, here's our court trial. You've been arrested for being a Christian, are you? Well, the evidence, the proof, is love. Now, I'll cite 1 Corinthians 13 without turning there. Love is kind, it suffers long, believeth all things, endureth all things, hopeth all things. You know, we've gone through those sermons time and time again over the years, the last two, three decades of my life. Substitute your name for love, Ted endures all things, Ted believes the best, Ted is patient, is kind, Ted does not vaunt himself, and you get so embarrassed about halfway through that chapter, you say, uh-oh, I've been slipping up again, I'm not sure I can apply all of that to me. Beautiful chapter of the Bible about love. So let's apply it to ourselves first, while I maybe am applying it to other people here that are in thither. Joy. I know, and I have existed side by side with people in God's church. And I've never caught them joyful. Their lives are wretched and empty and unhappy and miserable and morose and gray and drab and uninteresting and dull and boring. And you never catch them on a high. There is never any ebullience. There is never any effervescence. There's never any joy. Unless you give them half a bottle of scotch. That'll loosen their tongue. That'll get them happy. Oh, we, you know, but you can't, they can't get high, as some people in the bumper stickers, not thinking the wrong way, on, you know, Christ or on Christianity. That doesn't make them bounce, and that doesn't give them any energy and effervescence. Why? Maybe it's because they don't have any of God's love. Peace. Now, I've said for years, you better look out, because you get too close to some of these religious folks, you can flat get yourself killed. And you can because you don't find anybody knows how to hate like religious folks. Now, where did Jesus say they're going to whip his true people? Down to the horse barn? In court? Down at the police station? Oh, no. He said the time will come, and he talked about those in the synagogues, those in the churches, and listen, he said, they which kill you will think they do God a service. He didn't say think they do the state police a service or the dictator a service or the government a service or the courts or the county constable. But he said they will think as they're putting you to death that they're doing God a service. And what kind of people are they? They are religious people, aren't they? They're believers in God. 
They have a consciousness toward God, and they think their endeavor in making sure your last little shuddering breath has been and you're not moving anymore has done their relationship with God some good. I didn't used to understand it. I, I confess, a few years ago, and I've learned a lot in the last five years, I'll guarantee you, but a few years ago, it was hard for me to understand. I believed what Jesus said was right. I accepted it at face value in the 23rd chapter of Psalm, of, of, I'm sorry, of Matthew, 23rd chapter of Matthew, where he takes the Pharisees to task. You white and sepulchers, you fools, you generation of snakes, how can you escape the condemnation of hell, and so on. And fill ye up the measure of your fathers, because you say that if you'd have been there in the days when they killed Zacharias between the ports and the altar, you wouldn't have done it, and you therefore testify that you are the children of them who killed the prophets. And that was the part I couldn't understand. I didn't get it. You testify that you are the end-time generation, the children of those who burnt at the stake, tortured, sawn asunder, murdered the prophets of God. Finally, I came to understand it. Certain personalities forced me to understand it. And finally, I said, of course. It means there are people in church ministries today who, if the laws of the United States of America allowed it, would cheerfully burn a witch. They would be the first to strike the match. They'd throw a cup of gasoline and strike the match and say, there. Oh yeah, there are people with minds like that and who think they are converted. These are the ones who are the zap light. When the bug flies in, they got the little beggar. They're not even the, the yellow light that repels them. Now they repel people if those people find out what they are before they fly right on into the bug trap. Then they repel them. But they're certainly not a brilliant white light that attracts the people out there and draws them like a magnet to them. Peace. Are you going to find peace where you have internecine squabbles and infighting and politics? No, you're not. You're going to find peace where there is a complete absence of that. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, as Larry read, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. You know, our, our little baby children are so marvelous, of course, when they're not fighting with their brother. You know, there are exceptions. Or when they are asleep, and there is nothing cuter or sweeter than a little child when he is sound asleep. And certainly when they're only about one or two or three years of age, that is an idyllic time for a parent because you can love them and you can kiss their little feet and you powder them after their bath and there is nothing sweeter or more precious to you than your own little baby child. And when Jesus Christ of Nazareth tells us that our nature and our personality is to be that sweet, and that harmless, and that unthreatening, and that magnetic, and that attractive to other people, and tells us that even as you see a little child, you say, oh, look at that, you know, you're sitting in a restaurant, somebody comes in invariably with a little kid only about eight weeks old, and your eye goes over there, and if they're especially a cute little baby, you just gaze at them, you think, isn't that sweet, isn't that beautiful, and the tinier they are, the more helpless they are, then the more beautiful they are, and the more tender your feelings toward them. Isn't that what God wants to see in his children? Now, you who are parents, what do you want to see in your children? What kind of a child do you want them to be? Well, of course, you can pick any one of the very great upstanding words, good, decent, honest, kind, successful, intelligent, talented. Mothers want to see their daughters dressed up in their little pinafores. They want to take them down to dancing lessons. They want to teach them the piano. 
Fathers want to take their boys hunting. They want them to be masculine and they want them to be strong and athletic. And they want them to be honest. They want them to excel in school. They want them to be on the basketball team and win a letter. And they want the girl to be in the cheerleading squad and so on. We want them to have a great life and we don't want them to have any of the problems we had. So we want to try to rear them in such a way that we avoid all the heartaches and the problems we had. And if we got in any troubles, really bad trouble in school or whatever, as a teenager, oh, we want our kids to avoid that. That's right. That's good. So what does God want for us? What kind of a God is it up there in heaven? Let me ask you this question. Is God, when someone named Satan the devil, who is called the persecutor of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren, all right? Satan is up there, and he is accusing God and accusing you, pointing a finger of guilt, night and day. Your name, whatever it is. Satan the devil is up there, so-and-so is doing it again, he's at it again, he's dirty, he's evil, he's rotten, he's wrong, he's trying to do this and that and the other thing. What does God say? <gasps> he is? I'll kill the little monster. Is God instant wrath toward his children? Does God instantly believe the worst tale brought to him by third parties about his own child? Does he? Well, we know better than that. You know, oftentimes people take issue, and it took me years to learn this as well, with parents of killers and even mass murderers saying as they're interviewed by the reporter on television, well, we're going to stand by him. And we just can't believe he did that. And, and he's our son and we love him. Boy, I don't take issue with that at all. I understand that 100%. What do you expect? Someone comes along and gets into a hideous situation, maybe financial or whatever, and for some reason turns to a life of crime. Their parents never stop loving them. They never stop standing by them. What about when the child is just normal in every respect? What about you? Someone from the school where your child goes calls up and accuses your child of six or eight or ten filthy, dirty, evil deeds. You just wait for the kid with a big switch in your hand, do you? And the minute he comes dancing up the walk, you start making him dance a little higher. Say, I'll get you, you little monster. I believe every word they said about you. Or do you check with your kid first? Now, you don't want to say it's impossible. Not a bit of it can be true. But aren't you at least going to always give your child the benefit of the doubt? If there is any doubt, who gets the benefit of it? Your child or somebody else's child? And doesn't God explain and expect that when he talks about the way fathers and parents are with their children? Now, God the Father is reproducing children. What kind of children does he want? Look at it that way. He wants children to be of the same nature that Jesus Christ was. He wants them to have his nature. What is evil in that? What is bad about having the nature of the greatest athlete, the greatest intellect, the greatest inventor, the most powerful and strongest being that has ever been in the history of the universe, and to want to emulate and be like him? And isn't it amazing that instead of being gruff and brusque and hard as nails, and instead of being instantly angry, instead of being the old tall Texan with the cheroot in his face on a horse and sweaty jeans, or maybe going smokeless with little paints when you're taking your gums, riding off into the uh, kind of dung-smelling sunset midst his cows looking like old weathered leather, the idea, here's a macho man, Marlboro country, well, nonsense. Or a guy 
that you could walk up to and slap him a ringing blow up alongside the head and he'd just look at you and smile and say, Bless you, brother. I know why you did that. I mean, you know, you try to figure it out in your own mind uh, at this brief lifespan with which we have to deal and all of these guises, all of these little bit parts, all of these poses that people play in their lives that they emulate from movies they've seen or books they've read, at personality traits that people like to try to, to build inside themselves, perhaps from school chums where the boy wants to be tough and he wants to beat up on the bully in the block or the girl wants to be whatever, and then portray from the Spirit of God the fruit or the proof or the evidence that would be admissible in court as to the nature and the attitude of God. Love, joy, peace, meekness, temperance, faith. No thanks, I've had enough, I don't need any more. You know, that kind of thing. God's very nature was exemplified perfectly in Jesus Christ. The way he acted on the stake is, of course, that ultimate epitome of total goodness and perfection in a human being. Saying to those who were busily putting him to death, Father, forgive them. They know, not, know not what they do. Look at the rest of this. We've read briefly. Verse 24. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, a big if, let us also walk in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, so let's live in the Spirit. Daily, weekly. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. Over in Romans, the 8th chapter, it says very clearly, and oh, do I ever love this scripture, because I'll tell you, I do not believe in fear religion. Verse 15, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. It should read. Adoption is not a strong enough word. It's more than just legal adoption. It's actually sonship. Whereby, whereby or through this spirit we cry, Father, Father, or Abba, which is an untranslated word, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. You see, we have a spiritual quotient or quality or portion of our own mind that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Not of someone who owns a great big $240,000 house on a lake with a boathouse and two big racing boats and a sailing yacht and another home in Florida and another one up in uh, the Pacific Northwest and about 5,000 acres in Colorado uh, plus maybe uh, several hundred thousand shares of blue chip stocks and maybe a few tons of golden metal somewhere. That isn't your father who has left you a will. You are the person with a will, and the Bible is a will, written out with your name on it, and the signature has been written basically in the blood of Christ. His blood is the ink that actually ratifies a new covenant, or a new testament, or a new will. And he is the testator, and your name is on the dotted line. And you are to inherit all things with God. If children, then you are heirs. Now, my sons are my heirs. And they're going to be my heirs no matter what. I won't have much to leave them. I've got a little gun collection, and my wife and I have some furniture, and we have a home we're paying on, and anything happens to us, every stick of that is divided equally between my three sons. And I would relish and I welcome the opportunity to do that when I'm gone, to leave anything I possibly can. And one of our goals and our aims in life right now is to work as hard as we can to compile more 
for our children and future grandchildren. I don't need any more for myself at all. I'd like to have something to leave, to bequeath, to give to my heirs. God the Father wants you to be his child. He wants you to look like him. Logical. You want your children to look like you, basically. He wants you to act like he does. He wants you to excel in everything. He wants to be proud of you. He wants to applaud when you succeed. He wants you to be moving and bring tears to his eyes virtually with some of your emotions and your attitudes and certain aspects of your character. Is that an unreasonable request of our Father in heaven, that he wants us to be like him? Any more than it's an unreasonable request, you children, understand your parents, please. They want you to do good. They want you to be sweet and healthy and wholesome and right and they want you to be honest and they want you to be trustworthy and dependable and they want you to succeed because they just want you to have a wonderful happy life. So what's wrong with that? God wants the same thing for you now and for all eternity. If children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Now let's turn finally to 2 Timothy 1, 6 and verse 7. 2 Timothy 1, 6 and verse 7. Wherefore I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. You see a fearful person, afraid of his own ministry, afraid of his church, afraid to talk up and be heard, afraid to expose the innermost feelings, be they doubts or temerity or fear or misunderstanding or inquisitiveness in his mind, and I'll show you a person who is not under the nice warm blanket of the Spirit of God, is not in an environment of love and joy and peace, but is in an environment of suspicion and resentment and hostility and hatred and anger. And it doesn't come from God, because what emanates from God is the energy of love and joy and peace. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound, meaning mature or stable, mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. I'd like to say that to the church, tens of thousands of them. Why are they ashamed? They're not like the light that is white and the moths of the world are out here flooding over to them to try to get as close as they can because there's no magnetism. Rather, there is a repelling. Rather, no, you can't come to church till I check you out. Nonsense. The doors are wide open. The Bible says, whomsoever will may come. We are to be offering a universal welcome, a universal calling, saying, come and have the joy and the peace and the happiness and the kind of thrills and excitement that we have because we've discovered the secret of the universe, of the happy, wonderful, bounteous, good way to live. Now, I've heard the words. I've heard those same cliches. But I haven't seen the action. You've got to see the proof. You've got to see the action, not just hear the words. And we have a chance to put it in action. And someday final exams will come and God will ask us what kind of a light we've really been. Whether we've been that attractive, magnetic light that draws men to us. As Christ said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. So this is our birthday. And I thought it was good to rehearse a little bit about the nature of our Father. 
and the kind of children that he wants us to be. May we succeed in being his kids and satisfy him. <laughs>